I'm Dan Hartnett, and I'm a professor at Kenyon College. Whenever I'm socializing with my colleagues, I inevitably end up asking them questions about the fascinating research they do. I thought other people might be interested in our conversations, too. So I decided to start a podcast to ask Kenyan faculty about their research, their fields, and how they get students involved. This is the Kenyan College Profcast. My guest today is Dr. Jason Waller. Jason is a philosophy professor at Kenyon, and he specializes in metaphysics, the philosophy of law, and the history of modern philosophy. He recently published a book on the intersections of metaphysics and physics called The Metaphysics of Cosmological Fine-Tuning Arguments. I sat down with Jason in October of 2019 to chat. Jason, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Let's get some basics out of the way first. What is metaphysics? All the questions about the nature of reality that you can't solve with further empirical investigation. So if you can solve the problem with a microscope or a telescope or a statistical analysis or something like this, uh, it's not my problem, right? So my problems come in once all the data is in. Mm. And then our question is something more like, what does it mean? Let me give you a quick example, right? Uh, material constitution. I have a lump of clay. And, and I have a certain lump, and I'm, and I'm changing its shape and mushing it into lots of different shapes. And I give it to my son, and he has the same lump of clay, and he's mushing it into lots of different shapes, and he gives it back to me. And then I take the lump, and I mold it into a statue of Athena. Now, question. What happened to the lump of clay? Does the lump of clay still exist, or has it disappeared? Now, at first, you want to say, no, this is simply a language question, right? But no. Because lumps of clay can take on different shapes without being destroyed. Statues cannot radically alter their shapes without being destroyed. So they have different essential features. So if I take my lump of clay that has been turned into a statue of Athena, right, and I mush it, the lump of clay continues to exist, but the statue disappears, right? So when I'm holding it before I mush it, how many objects do I have in my hand? Well, you could say, one, I have a statue, but not a lump of clay. Two, I have a lump of clay, but not a statue. Or you could say, I have two objects that are what philosophers call coincident entities that are co-located and have exactly the same parts, but different essences, right? All of those options are problematic. And so this is the sort of essential metaphysical approach, which is which of the options sucks the least? <laughs> and so most metaphysical arguments come down to this problem, this solution has the fewest counterintuitive consequences. And what have been some traditional approaches to studying metaphysics? Your traditional approach, uh, there's really only one, right? Uh, which is the application of logic. So philosophers use logic to uh, take apart these sorts of problems, analyze them, um, going back to the material constitution problem, right? You might say something like, no, 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 this is just a language issue. Maybe there are no such things as lumps of clay or statues, okay? Uh, there's instead just what we call metaphysical symbols, whatever it is that physics tells us are the simplest entities. And then we just use language to parcel up the world in useful ways. Well, if that's true, then we have to believe things like airplanes don't exist <laughs> because airplanes, of course, are also co-located with lumps of metal <laughs> and things like this. We have to believe that cups and coffee and paper and clothes and such things don't exist. That's a radical problem <laughs> uh, for someone to hold, right? Is to mm. say, oh, you think there are only metaphysical symbols and, if you will, 
bunches of metaphysical symbols that we name, but they don't really exist. They're just how we choose to parcel up reality. Uh, the logical consequences of that view are rather dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so what philosophers do is they draw out the consequences and then say, are the consequences so implausible that we no longer want to uphold the actual proposition? But it sounds like there's no proposition that isn't problematic. Correct. Okay. Yep. That's right. So then the question is, which is the most problematic or least problematic? Okay. That's the argument. <laughs> That's what philosophers do. I see. Where does metaphysics fit in with other areas of philosophy? Uh, sure. There are three broad questions in philosophy, right? What is the nature of reality? What can we know and how do we know it? What are the limits of human knowledge? And then how should we live our lives? Right? These are metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics. In the past, when you and I were talking, you explained that we could study the philosophy of just about anything. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> um, yeah, about every discipline, every approach is going to begin with making certain philosophical assumptions. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. You have to do it. Uh, philosophy is the unavoidable subject, right? Whatever you're doing, you're going to begin by having certain assumptions about knowledge, about what exists, probably about normativity or what ought to be or morality. And those assumptions usually within a discipline are invisible because they're not called into question within a particular discipline. Uh, it's only when you step outside and look in, sort of as a, uh, as a philosopher, can you see these assumptions that are being universally made. And then we can question them. Like, is this a, an assumption we want made? Is this a viable assumption? What would it look like if we denied it? Questions like this. Are there areas where philosophy might not be that productive? Uh, I don't know. It depends on what you mean by productive. <laughs> right? Okay. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. If you're looking for reaching consensus, right? then uh, philosophers are terrible at reaching consensus. Okay? There's often consensus that certain views are false or deeply problematic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but rarely do we reach consensus on a positive proposition. And I think this is simply because philosophy is extraordinarily difficult. The data is complicated. The data is difficult to interpret. The weighing and balancing of different competing evidence and arguments is very hard. And so even two honest and good people looking at the same data and same set of arguments could still quite reasonably reach uh, different conclusions. I once heard you describe philosophy as something along the lines of all those things we don't know how to think about yet. Yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I mean, if you think of philosophy as like the mother discipline from which everything else emerges, right? then we sort of, we figure out how to do certain things and then they break free. In the late 19th century, uh, great mathematics came along and so we can figure out how to do sociology using statistical models of society and things like this. And then the study of society sort of breaks free as, uh, as an independent subject that has, now has its own methodology, its own presuppositions, and it becomes lots of, and lots of progress happens in the discipline. And so it becomes its own sort of world unto itself. In the 20th century, psychology breaks out from the sort of mother discipline. In fact, Cambridge University, I believe their department of philosophy is still called the Department of Philosophy and Psychology. But in the early 20th century, new models came along, new ways of thinking about how consensus formed around how to study psychological issues. And then they got ejected from the sort of philosophical world and set up their own camp. Uh, we're probably on the brink of uh, logic 
breaking free. Massive discoveries in logic and alternative logical systems uh, that are fascinating, and they're becoming so technical and so involved that it's going to become probably uh, a discipline unto itself, <laughs> I think, before too long. But if metaphysics, for example, relies so heavily on logic, is it problematic that logic might split off? No, I don't think so. In fact, it would be quite good if the logicians can then come back and check our reasoning. Often mm. in philosophy, what we find is we're arguing about the validity of the inference, right? Is this, mm -hmm. in fact, a good inference? Just let me give you a quick example of a, of a controversial inference. I define God, say, as something that has all perfections, right? Second premise. Existence is a perfection, right? To exist is better than to not exist. If you ask me, hey, would you rather exist or not exist? I choose exist. If you're going to offer me money and you're going to offer me existing money as opposed to non-existing money, I choose the existing money, right? The fact that the check that you wrote me for a million dollars doesn't exist is a major flaw in that check, right? Mm -hmm. It would be better if it did in fact exist. So it seems as though existence is a perfection. But we define God as a thing that has all perfections. Therefore, it automatically follows that God must exist by definition, right? Because God has, in fact, all perfections and existence is a perfection. Now, it sounds like there's a trick here somewhere, right? Is this a valid inference has been a debate philosophers have been having for hmm, at least 900 years. Getting back to fields splitting off from philosophy, how do you think it affects other fields when they disconnect from the primary conversations going on in the field of philosophy? On the whole, I think it's good because they're able to focus on questions that aren't foundational, right? Mm. Uh, Newton's paper on light, for example, is a great scientific paper because it doesn't mention, you know, the Trinity or the fall of man or like the basic <laughs> questions of God's existence and the relation of humanity to the universe. It's a paper about light, and he explains the experiments he went through and how he went through it. That's great. It does have problems to some extent when a discipline becomes so divorced from philosophy that they become overconfident in their philosophical views. Um, you can see this in a lot of popular writing where uh, usually the scientist will say, philosophy is a waste of time, I hate philosophy, blah, blah, blah and then make really problematic philosophical assumptions, often on the same page. Whereas if they had simply had a conversation with a knowledgeable philosopher, they wouldn't have made these mistakes. Hmm. I, I find this extraordinarily common, in fact. What are the basic divisions in modern philosophy, and where do you fit in? Good question. The biggest division I think we would have would first be between sort of analytic philosophy and continental philosophy. Yeah, what are those? Analytic philosophy is... Ba it, tends to be, and these are going to be tendencies, there's a lot of borderline cases here, tends to be very interested in formal reasoning and formal logic, tends to be very closely related to the sciences. Progress in science, it becomes very interesting to sort of analytic philosophers. And what analytic philosophers want to do is try to conceptually clarify key concepts that we're using perhaps in other disciplines mm -hmm. and things like this. Uh, they see themselves as like, I don't know, roughly related to the broad scientific project. Continental philosophers, on the other hand, are interested in questions about how one lives in the broadest sense. And the sort of key movement in continental philosophy is existentialism, which argues in the middle of the 20th century that everything is in itself meaningless and human minds give the world whatever meaning it happens to have. And so unlike an ancient model where God exists and tells you uh, and you have to discover what 
God's purpose for you is. If you're an existentialist, there's no purpose. You either choose a purpose or don't and kill yourself. Uh, you either assign meaning to the meaningless universe or you don't, right? Mm -hmm. And how one lives in that meaningless universe uh, becomes a significant issue, right? These two schools of thought are often antagonistic, don't talk to each other. Continental philosophers often will look at analytic philosophers as not asking the big questions. Mm -hmm. Analytic philosophers complain that continental philosophy is self-indulgent and not rigorous. And I think most of those criticisms are unfair on all sides. <laughs> I think there's really great continental philosophy happening right now, and there's really great analytic philosophy. And uh, I think they're just doing different things. When we're talking about continental philosophy, the continent is Europe. Mm -hmm. Do these schools grow out of earlier divisions historically? Yeah, interesting. Yes. Broadly speaking, they both arise as a response to Immanuel Kant. Hmm. Let's say, I don't know, you're at the time of the French Revolution. Okay? Kant has just died. Okay? What would you believe? What you would believe is that philosophy in the West began with Plato and ended with Kant. Kant solved all philosophical problems, right? <laughs> now, we look at Kant and we think, oh, but there's a couple problems with his view. And so we're going to like clean up the details, right? Um, the project for the next, I don't know, 100 years or so is cleaning up the details. Doing that, we made major discoveries. For example, Kant assumes that Euclidean geometry is the only possible geometry of space. That turns out to be false, right? In fact, he assumes it's the only consistent geometry. That also turns out to be false. He assumes that Aristotle's logic is the best logic that could ever exist. Now, that's reasonable for him. It had been around for 20 centuries with no improvement. In the 19th century, we develop a formal logical system which is much more powerful than Aristotelian logic and can prove a lot more things. What a lot of the things that Kant took for granted turned out to be wrong. What do you do with that, right? The debates around sort of Kant, what follows Kant, the discoveries that follow Kant is where ultimately these divisions come from. It gets messy quickly, but that's the sort of general story. And where does Eastern philosophy fit into all this? Yeah, great question. Eastern philosophy, I think you should see as an independent tradition running alongside. There really isn't, until very recently, much interaction between hmm. Eastern schools of thought and Western schools of thought. And when there is, they tend to be rather superficial uh, until fairly recently. When you say recently... What time frame are we talking? The last year or a century ago? Yeah, the last hundred years. Okay, so, I yeah. see. Okay. I mean, recent in philosophical terms, right? Why is it important for us to learn something about philosophy? Because it's unavoidable. Right? Uh, you can't not have philosophical beliefs. You can either reflect on them or you can not reflect on them, but you can't not have them. Mm. Uh, you may not be interested in biology and like how squirrels mate and, you know, make more squirrels or something, right? Um, this is a subject you have to be taught to be interested in, right? Like if I'm going to study squirrel mating behavior, you have to like convince me that this is actually interesting. But the question of why is there something rather than nothing? How should I live my life? What are the limits of human knowledge? Can you prove that you're not in the matrix? I think these are questions everyone has opinions on mm -hmm. and is inherently automatically interested in. Jason, what are philosophy conferences like? Yeah. Well, they're awkward. Um, that's the first thing you have to know about philosophy conferences. They tend to be contentious. Philosophers love to argue. It's seen generally, I think, as a sign of respect for someone to object to something you say in philosophy. I know in many other disciplines, like in math, you get a presentation in a math presentation and no one objects to it because to object 
to the presentation is to call into question the authority or is to be somewhat disrespectful, right? In philosophy, to not object is to be disrespectful, right? It means either you didn't understand it or your claims are so uninteresting that they're not even worth responding to, right? The way you show a philosopher of respect is to say, oh, no, no, I think your views are wrong and here's why. So philosophers tend to be very argumentative, but it's not personal by any means. We're most interested in finding the truth. And of course, I could be wrong. The inf it's incredibly difficult to find the best answer, all things considered. And so, you know, you have to welcome criticism. Do you find that you have to have sort of a philosopher self and, uh, and a person in the world self? I imagine if you went to Kroger the way you go to a philosophy conference, it might make your life a little difficult. Yeah. No, I think I think that's that's true. You do have to be careful uh, when not talking to philosophers. Many will see criticism as insulting. Right. Oh, no, I think your view is wrong for these six reasons. Right. Reason one, reason two, reason three. Many people would find that incredibly irritating. I found it a little insulting in the past. I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. Um, but but once I learned more about sort of the culture of philosophy as a discipline, I thought, oh, OK, this is just somebody sussing out my idea and trying to understand it a little better. Have you thought at all about how philosophers are portrayed in popular culture and popular media? I mean, in the last few years, uh, the character of Chidi in The Good Place, for example, as a moral mm -hmm. philosopher. I'm not from. Are you familiar with the show? I've seen a couple episodes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's a moral philosopher whose profession and personality are problematic for him as he's as he's leading his normal everyday life, and that's the source of a lot of comedy. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, can you can you talk about seeing somebody who's a philosopher represented in popular media? What does that What does that feel like for you? Yeah. So I think it's awesome that we have a television show with a philosophy professor as one of our, you know, <laughs> leading heroes. There should be more of them. But yeah, the particular character strikes me as sort of odd. He, he's very hand-wringing, very concerned about lots of various questions, right? He seems to also have no particularly coherent set of moral views. He seems to just have a lot of inconsistent views like, oh, let's talk about deontology. Let's talk about consequentialism and trolley problems and stuff. But they don't actually seem to cohere, so far as I can tell, into a single worldview. Can we talk about two general approaches to sort of ethical questions, right? Mm. Uh, there are some people who are theory bound. You have a broad theory of moral philosophy, and then you deduce all of your particular views from it. The problem with that is that oftentimes the particulars are deeply troubling. Most obviously, um, there are consequentialists. The morality of an act is determined entirely by whether it has good or bad consequences. Well, that theory seems to entail that slavery is morally acceptable under certain circumstances, mm -hmm. namely any circumstance where it would have better consequences than not. That strikes many people as self-evidently false mm -hmm. <laughs> and therefore problematic. The opposing way to do ethics is to hold lots of particular views that you think are right, like slavery is wrong and then slowly develop a coherent set of moral theories or beliefs around that. The problem with that view is it tends to be, you tend to change your theory to fit what you want to believe, mm. right? You tend to gerrymander your theory to get the answers you want. Um, and so you have to be very careful about not you know, doing that, right? So whether you start with your theory or you start with the particulars, you're gonna have certain problems. Let's talk a little about your book that came out recently. The Metaphysics of Cosmological Fine-Tuning Arguments. 
Um, could you explain cosmological fine-tuning as a concept? Yeah, sure. This is uh, a concept first appears in the physics literature maybe 40 or 50 years ago. The idea here is that there are many fundamental facts about the laws of nature that if they were just slightly different, the evolution of intelligent life in our universe would have been impossible. There are many such examples as recounted in the book, okay? And here are some sort of obvious ones. The quantity of matter energy in the universe. Keep everything else the same. Increase the quantity of matter energy by a relatively small percentage. And at the moment of the Big Bang, the universe recollapses again, almost immediately, mm -hmm. right? Uh, lower the amount of matter energy just slightly. And the Big Bang now shoots the matter out so quickly that it wouldn't condense into atoms, mm -hmm. right? So you need the sort of matter energy content, the quantity of it to be within a fairly narrow range holding everything else constant to get a universe with life. Not only that, but you need the sort of density to be uh, in a certain way to get galaxies. You need it to be broadly uniform with some ripples that will later condense into galaxies. Too many ripples and it doesn't work. Too few and everything spreads out and never condenses into stars. So you need just the right balance. There's a whole host, dozens of these sorts of, of I don't know, coincidences. In his last book, Stephen Hawking writes that these coincidences are so intriguing that they would almost lead one to think that it wasn't an accident, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. uh, of course, he concludes that it is a, not intentional by any sort of being, but he says you can't look at this and think, oh, there's nothing here that needs to be explained. So now that we know what fine-tuning is, that in many ways it's, it's striking the, an acceptable balance for having the universe that we have in one way, shape, or form, can you explain the premise of the book briefly? Sure. The book is the culmination of, let's say, six or seven years of research. My goal was to take all of the literature on this question and condense it into a single mm. text that will evaluate all of the relevant arguments and try to reach a substantive conclusion on where we are at the moment. So the book examines a lot of the physics literature and the relevant math literature and the relevant you know, uh, theological literature and things like this. My conclusions are, if we just look at the fine-tuning of the universe, there really are two answers that are much more probable than all of the other answers. And these are, first, the hypothesis that there is some sort of designer, some sort of godlike thing that intentionally created the universe. I don't think that option can be ruled out. I think the objections that have been made to this option are unsuccessful and that arguments for the existence of a, of a designer of the universe can avoid all the current objections that have been raised. And then the alternative, the sort of naturalistic alternative, is the idea of a, of a multiverse, that there are many, 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 many different universes out there, and that the laws of nature are sort of randomly assigned in each one of those universes. Now, the vast majority of them are boring and empty of life, but of course, we can only observe the ones that in fact, or the one that uh, is fine-tuned in such a way that life can evolve. Now, these provide very different types of explanations, notice. The design hypothesis is a causal explanation, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the multiverse explanation is a statistical explanation, right? You still have questions on both of these um, cases. If there's a designer, then you want to ask, why this universe and not another? And if there really is a godlike thing, that may be a question, the answer to which we could never in principle know. 
if you're a multiverse theorist, then naturally you want to ask, why does the multiverse exist? And then more specifically, why this multiverse rather than some other multiverse, right? So you seem to arrive at the same problem at a different level of generality. But I think these are, in fact, the two best options. They're also the two most popular options. Mm -hmm. And I think which one you're drawn to depends on basic metaphysical intuitions that you have that are very difficult to justify. What are basic metaphysical intuitions? For example, one way to deal with this question, the sort of obvious way, would be to say, okay, which of these is a better theory? Well, one of the best theoretical virtues is simplicity, right? I mean, why have a complicated theory when a simpler theory would do the same work? Okay, which of these two theories is simpler? Well, the theist says, the God hypothesis is simpler. I only need one entity. Well, yeah, but your entity's really weird, right? I mean, it's a non-temporal person that exists necessarily and then chose to make quantum mechanics. I mean, this is a really messed up, this is really weird, right? So yeah, you have one entity, but it's a really weird entity. It's almost literally a deus ex machina, right? Um, like a is... god out of out of the machine, but it's a god that creates the machine, right? Absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> On the other side, you say, oh, you need millions or perhaps an infinite number of other universes. You're like, wow, that seems really complicated, right? And then he says, no, no, sure, there's a lot of them, but they're qualitatively simpler, right? They're universes just like this one. I only need physical objects like this one. I just need a lot more of them. Mm -hmm. Whereas you need something, theist, that is of a totally different type. Mm -hmm. So while you only need one of them, it's of a weird type. I need millions of them, but they're all of one type. So it's simpler in terms of qualitatively, whereas the theist view is simpler quantitatively, which is more important. I have no idea how to answer that question, <laughs> right? And which one you think is more important probably turns on what answer you want to find at the end. Sure. So I, I at this point, I, I declare that the arguments for and against both of these hypotheses are inconclusive and we're left at a draw, okay? Then, in my original move, I develop a completely different argument based on what philosophers call possible worlds, where a possible world is the complete way that things could have been. And there's a very finely developed modal logic related to possible worlds and the set of all the possible worlds is the set of all the total ways things could have been. And using this model, I argue that possible worlds are fine-tuned in much the way that universes are. Hmm. And if you accept that view, then the only plausible explanation for why this actual world or worlds with this feature exist rather than some other, I argue, is that is going to be some kind of design hypothesis. So I think you're going to end up with a view that the multiverse view at the level of possible worlds becomes wildly implausible. And mm. so we're trapped with a theistic view. There's a famous quote by um, Sherlock Holmes that once all the impossible options have been excluded, whatever is left, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. So I call this argument the Sherlock Holmes argument because you might think, wow, the idea of like this godlike thing is really weird. And my answer is, yeah, it's really weird. But all the other options are vastly less plausible. Jason, how much math and physics did you need to learn to be able to engage with the material at hand? Yeah, good question. I needed to learn enough to be able to understand 
the articles I was reading. Yeah. But there's always a danger of being the amateur in the field and misunderstanding. So instead of trying to do it myself, I worked with physicists and mathematicians uh, to make sure I wasn't missing something. What I found rather quickly, though, is I think the the more you go into the details, the less it matters, right? Hmm. The fundamental questions here are conceptual. Uh, they're not related to the you know messy details of uh, of you know general relativity. They're related to much more fundamental conceptual questions about why this and not something else. And to what extent do students figure into your scholarly work, either this project or other projects you've worked on in the past? Oh, uh, very much. I love work. I'm a very collaborative person. I love working with other people. So yeah, I've worked with I worked with dozens of students on this particular project. In fact, some of them get substantial coverage in, in the book. I had a student who presented an objection that I'd never heard before to a particular argument. So I went searching, and so far as I can tell, no one else has made this objection. So I attribute the objection to the student, and we spent, I don't know, five or ten pages debating whether or not the objection works. Ultimately, I don't think it works, but I don't think it works for rather interesting reasons, right? And I think that's important. Sort of there's a broader, I don't know, moral point, perhaps, or maybe epistemological, which is that good ideas come from all over the place. And so if you just confine your attention to the few most prominent people in the discipline, you miss a lot. I even went on blogs to look up what you know mm. various people are saying. Most of it's junk. But every now and then, right, you get an idea that is interesting and original that you would not otherwise have found. Jason, what are you working on right now? Currently, I am obsessed with law. So all of my current projects are legal theory. I'm currently deep in the weeds on <laughs> the uh, George Zimmerman murder trial, uh, the man who shot Trayvon Martin mm -hmm. in 2012. I'm considering writing a book on the trial and uh, the aftermath, the beginning of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and how this happened and what it means. So I've currently printed up all of the court documents related to the trial. It's three large binders, and I'm going through them. I was reading uh, Trayvon's autopsy report just yesterday. It's an incredibly interesting case that raises a number of really interesting sort of social and legal political hmm. questions. Right? So I want to you know, dive deep into that idea. I'm also interested in international law. There are big questions on the nature of international law that have reached no consensus. Uh, I'm very interested in these sorts of questions. I have, I'm have i toying with a book project on the philosophy of international law. So um, yeah, these are my current projects. Jason, why do you take on such different and big projects? What drives you to do that? Um, yeah, good question. I need a lot of intellectual stimulation. <laughs> um, I, I like big projects with lots of different moving parts. And I don't know, maybe I get bored easily. <laughs> hmm. And so I like to dive deeply into one subject, obsess over every little detail for some period of time, like I just did fine tuning for six years, reach my conclusions, write the book, and then it's time to jump into a different project. Right? Mm -hmm. So right now I'm obsessing over, um, you know, Trayvon Martin and the Zimmerman trial, right? Um, and then when that's over, we'll jump into something else. I think it's just a personality quirk of mine. I don't know. Is there one thing you wish non-philosophers knew about your field? Yes. The problems are very, very difficult and not to be overconfident that your views are correct. Hmm. Um, there are many things I, I believed 10 years ago that I was certain were true that are wrong, almost certainly false. 
right? Mm. And until you've had that happen over and over again, you tend to believe that your views are that you're, I don't know, unique among all humans for not having blinders on and uh, other people are blinded in certain ways and can't see the whole picture. But you alone have been favored to see the whole board. And so your views are somehow uh, epistemically more trustworthy than others. Yeah, that, that's, that's BS. Uh, and, and you have to learn that by falling down over and over again. On the flip side, though, the sort of naive, silly relativism is almost certainly false. Just because you believe it does not make it true. Lots of people believe false things. Hmm. Um, you can't give up the idea of truth, right? So, you know, when you're looking at all these arguments, you don't just say, well, believe whatever you want because all the arguments are equally good. That's almost never true, right? Instead, one of the views probably is substantially better than the other views. It's just very difficult to precisely identify which one. Well, Jason, I want to thank you for speaking with me today. Thank you for inviting me. This episode was recorded at the Wright Center in downtown Mount Vernon in the beautiful facilities of the Department of Dance, Drama, and Film. My thanks go to my editor and junior producer, Elizabeth Aduma, Kenyan class of 2020, who recorded this episode, edited it, and made it sound professional. Thank you also to the Center for Innovative Pedagogy that funded this project and consulted on it since the beginning.